In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we needed to write as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. A new year brings new opportunity to plan your Disney-related vacation, and joining me on Notably Disney today is travel journalist Seth Kaberski, the longtime author behind the Unofficial Guide to Disneyland series and other books too, who today is here to join me uh, as we discuss the 2024 iteration of the book. Can't believe we're entering a new year, Seth. It's all about how to best plan your vacation, the happiest place on earth. I understand you're in that boat uh, right now yourself. Really glad to have you on today. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for making time and inviting me on to your show. Uh, I love Disney music and Disney books. Um, I was a fan of them before I was part of the industry, so uh, I'm always excited to talk about it. And I've got to clarify, I guess now I've been doing this for over 10 years, so I am a long time, I guess a decade, but I was not the founder of the unofficial guide. Uh, that goes all the way back to uh, Bob Selinger, whose books I would read uh, when I was a kid um, back in the 80s. And uh, also Len Testa, who joined him uh, years later. And I've just kind of uh, taken up the flag and, and run with it. Uh, but I, I stand on the shoulders of giants. Very fair, very fair. And but yes, I do think decade mark uh, is a long. <laughs> yeah, time, I guess. Right? I guess. Yeah, I know. I don't like to think of myself as doing it, uh, being anything a long time. But I guess by now I am established how about that is that all right better? that'll work that'll work that makes me sound less old okay fair enough uh i would say seasoned and experienced uh in in all things writing about disney seth for those rare listeners who might be unacquainted with the unofficial guide to disneyland 2024 how would you briefly describe what this very thorough title offers to readers Absolutely. Uh, well, the unofficial guide, uh, the title and the spirit of it uh, date all the way back to the days where there was only the official line from Disney. Uh, there was an official guidebook and, uh, you know, journalists, if they wrote anything about Disney, it was just towing the official line and saying everything is perfect and ma magical 
And, um, you know, our founder, Bob, was the first one to uh, go to Disney and like a lot of it, but also kind of have a miserable time dragging his kids around and wanting to find a better way. Uh, so, you know, more than 30 years later, uh, this this book continues to be uh, the, the repository of our knowledge of how to find your a better way around Disney. Um, we we do our best to understand the crowds, understand the way Disney operates uh, and give you the tips and tricks that you need to know to go left when everyone else is going right uh, and to be prepared. Uh, because honestly, Disney has made uh, having a Disney vacation so complicated over the last uh, decade or two that you either need a PhD or a very expensive paid VIP tour guide or one of our books to help you figure out how to just relax and enjoy your vacation. Very fair. Well, uh, I, I should have just gone the book and avoided getting a PhD and education <laughs> myself. That would have saved me a lot of time and money. So, right? You are right. Uh, still paying back those loans for that uh, master's degree in 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 theme parkology. You know, <laughs> there you go. Uh, appreciate that context. Now, what's what I've always loved about the unofficial guide, and I've been a reader for gosh, at least the past twenty years of different iterations, and. And what I really appreciate is the level of uh, curiosity and thoughtfulness that comes into um, everything from lodging to dining to mm. planning the day of the parks, everything in between. You share a little bit at the start of the book about the evaluative process that you and your team engage in mm -hmm. within and around the park. Can you can you kind of ground us in in terms of how extensive those efforts are because i feel like you all just give like a little tease of what ultimately appears to be a much more complicated and extensive uh set of procedures um yeah i i wish uh that i could um divulge all of the secret sauce that goes into it uh but what i will say is that i am just a small part of the team i personally live in orlando and I go out to Disneyland uh, a couple times a year, um, spend uh, try to spend a week each time, uh, two or three times a year um, to field tests, uh, you know, everything that our, our team has put together and to see everything uh, myself. I try to do every single attraction and the Disneyland Resort at least once a year, uh, if not more than once a year myself. Um, but on top of that, uh, you know, we have uh, our team at Touring Plans that we partner with, which is uh, Len Testa, uh, who is the, uh, you know, kind of the brain behind the uh, statistical system that we use, along with our team of statisticians. Um, and a lot of what we do is raw numbers uh, based on both um you know, taking the information that Disney puts out there uh, in terms of wait times in their uh, apps, in terms of uh, having reader surveys, uh, we get uh, thousands of reader surveys every year, giving us really granular information on how people are responding to uh, different rides, different hotels, different restaurants, um, and also boots on the ground. Um, we have uh, both people uh, people who are just supporters, readers, users of our app, uh, constantly submitting information to us every day 
through our app um and also uh you know friends um uh, spies um you know uh, co uh confederates who are are out there and uh you know kind of feeding us information at all it kind of processes through my brain and uh, a billion different spreadsheets and uh you know uh google documents that we keep and the the process of updating the book uh and and funneling all this together is literally a year-round process uh, the 2024 book just came out and i've already got uh posted online um our first month's worth of errata uh of <laughs> updates because uh, as soon as you put something in print, uh, Disney, that's as soon as Disney is certain to change it. Uh, so it is it is a constant battle. But uh, we've we've got a lot of people helping us out, uh, keeping that all rolling. I appreciate the perspective there. Are you in a spot to kind of indicate like how like are there people visiting the parks like on a daily basis in terms of gauging like uh whether it be like uh, new new dishes uh, yeah. that are served uh, at the parks or yeah. uh, testing out, you know, like certain days of the week being more. And, and I know a big part of that is tied with the yeah. touring plans piece, but I'm I'm curious yeah. in terms of what those operations look like. Yeah, I mean, between uh, the unofficial guide team and our our partners at touring plans, um, I don't know if I would guarantee 365 days a year there's someone there but uh there's there's someone um you know giving us information there uh, multiple days every week uh at least uh that's for sure and it sounds like your role is really compiling all this information together can you yeah kind of like what what exactly you're doing to curate because you also talk about and i want to dig into it all the the reader feedback but yeah information overload i imagine yeah um, I mean, only I even if all I did was uh, keep up with Disney's own press releases and keeping track of every uh, every show that opens and then closes and then reopens uh, and, um, you know, every change in a menu item um, that alone would be a full time job. Um, and then also, uh, you know, we we uh, keep track of everything that's going on in social media uh you know in in various forums what are the rumors people are talking about uh we listen to to podcasts and watch vloggers and try to stay on top of uh you know what are the trends what are people uh interested in and then um you know i it, it all kind of literally gets funneled down to a series of uh, spreadsheets and Google Docs and checklists that I'm constantly going over and uh, then comparing to what we currently have in the book uh, and seeing what needs to be updated um, and uh, how we can get the information out. Uh, you know, between book updates, we have our website, we have our social media, we have our YouTube channel. And um, so it's, you know, constantly a, a, a question of, um, for each change that happens in the park, and there's a million changes every day, uh, which changes are the ones that are going to stick long enough to be worth putting in print, and uh, which ones are more ephemeral and uh, can find another route to talk about. So kind of in that spirit, it makes me wonder how you all make sense of the increasing uncertainty <laughs> with planning for mm. levels from day to day, month to month. It seemed like even five, 10 years ago, we could see certain patterns of like, this is the best time yeah. of the year to visit. 
that seems to have all gone by the wayside now. Yeah, we we have absolutely uh, since COVID seen shifts in attendance. Uh, I think one of the biggest shifts that we've seen just within the last twelve months is that summer. Once upon a time, summer was a peak time. Uh, summer has definitely uh, become uh, a much less uh, attended time um, in California, certainly, definitely in in Florida. Uh, people do not want to be in in Florida in July anymore, uh, for very good reason. Um, and, and and on the flip side, we have seen uh, over the last few years the uh, the fall season, the Halloween Halloween season in particularly, uh, become crazy busy. Um, it's almost uh, more popular than the Christmas season in some ways. Um, part of that is due to uh, climate change. Part of that is due to people's changing um, lifestyles in terms of school schedules and work schedules. But a lot of that is uh, Disney's done their best with this uh, tiered ticketing system and block out dates for annual pass holders to uh, manipulate and shove crowds in one direction or another. Uh, sometimes they've they've been almost... Uh, too successful for their own good because there there are days that uh, years ago we would have predicted would have been peak days, uh, you know, because of the holiday calendar uh, that have ended up being ghost towns because Disney is blocked out and priced out so many people. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, the that is a uh, definitely keeps our friends at touring plans uh, on their on their toes. Uh, in terms of uh, planning out uh, or keeping updated their crowd calendars, which is probably the most uh, the thing that they're they're best known for. Um, and, uh, you know, the the data in that is constantly updated. Obviously, we can't constantly update the information in the books. So we give a more general idea in the book about what the high seasons and the low seasons are without, uh, you know, being that granular. Um, but the book's kind of uh, purpose is uh, we give you the advice uh, and the tips that you need to deal with uh, touring, even if you pick the wrong day. Uh, so we try to help you uh, guide yourself to a, a slow season. But if you can't, we still uh, try to help you make the best of it, uh, even in the worst of a circumstance. Right. Well, and it seems like that invariably... Uh, and you all attend to this in the book, there's really this paradox between extreme organization and how you approach your day at the park yeah. and then spontaneity mm -hmm. in going to the parks. And that's completely contingent on how our guest operates. So yep. how do you all account for that, not only in terms of your partnership with touring plans, but also the general messaging that you want to give off, which is to be a thoughtful plan or you like, you know, having a PhD in, in theme park navigation, but also like, Hey, I just want to have a good time. And I don't want every minute to be totally lined up. Absolutely. Um, and I am very sympathetic to that. Um, I have always been kind of like the theme park commando type, even when I was like a teenager, uh, my family would take our, our, you know, every four or five year vacation uh, down to Disney. I would always be the one wanting us to rope drop and having a, a plan of what attractions we wanted to see. And everyone else was just like, can't we just figure it out when we get there? Um, and uh, so I, I'm very sympathetic to that, uh, that tension that exists within families. What 
the advice that we give in the book is that um uh that spontaneity um in terms of lack of organization or lack of uh education ahead of time does not work well at disney um that kind of spontaneity leaves you uh standing in the end of a very very long line and then complaining at the end of the day that you spent a lot of money and didn't get to see anything uh the best kind of planning for a disney vacation is to know ahead of time what is important to you, what uh, you want to do, what is your must-dos, what are the things that you're willing to sacrifice, and have a plan so that you can know when to throw that plan away. Um, the the most important thing to know about, uh, you know, a Disney vacation is kind of like planning for a, a military operation is that eventually, uh, you know, the, the plan goes away um, and that uh, having a good plan is what allows you to improvise when the plan fails. Um, if you go in with no plan, uh, then you're scrambling from the very beginning. Um, eventually, you know, a ride's going to break down or a person in your family is going to break down uh, and you're going to, you're going to need to uh, call an audible and, and switch to plan B. Uh, but having the plan A there at least uh, gives you a structure, uh, gives you, and it also um, can, uh, can help break down on fight, uh, cut down on fights among <laughs> you and the people you're in. A, being in a park is super stressful, especially if it's hot or if it's crowded. Um, trying to get some of these decisions and discussions out of the way with your family before you are on your very expensive vacation where everything is very high stakes because the cost per minute is ridiculously high. Have these conversations in a, a more comfortable environment, plan out what you all want to do. And then uh, instead of uh, every 20 minutes having to stop still in the middle of a pathway staring at a map and everyone arguing about what we want to do next so yeah i i totally empathize with the tension between spontaneity and structure um and and my answer would be the structure is what lets you be spontaneous and still feel like you got done everything you wanted to accomplish uh, that's a it's a really good mindset and you all uh cover really well the emergence and evolution of genie plus and my complaints <laughs> And how that's just kind of it's it's been a journey evolution would be uh that would um maybe the mutation um uh, the yeah. like i keep thinking of john carpenter's the thing where you know like dog heads and tentacles sticking out from all directions uh but yeah genie genie plus could be an entire book unto itself but what i really appreciated um with how you all approach is it, it felt very um, it felt very straightforward in terms of how you broke it down into different components, but you also really give a game plan in terms of how to best leverage it. Um, in yeah. terms of, and it seems like Disneyland is its own different beast with Genie Plus in terms of mm -hmm. that you can get more mileage out of it than you can at Walt Disney World. Can you maybe share a little bit more of how you've processed that, especially as someone who lives like right next to Walt Disney World and is more attuned uh, to the dynamics there? Yeah, absolutely. I will say personally, I rarely, if ever, use Genie Plus when I am at Walt Disney World. Uh, I I pretty much never use it at Epcot or 
Animal Kingdom, and I will occasionally use it uh, if I'm spending a whole day at Hollywood Studios or Magic Kingdom. But that's mostly saying how frustrating the operations are at those parks rather than how efficient Genie Plus is. At Disneyland, I use it every time. Um, I was a fan of the old FastPass system, and I thought when they introduced MaxPass, which basically was the old FastPass just in your phone, um, it was worth it to me for the 10 or $15 that they initially charged uh, just to be able to not have to walk uh, to the fast pass machine uh, and, and across the park and being able to just pull it up on my phone. Um, I'm not crazy about the way that Genie Plus has basically taken the same thing, but removed some of the features and greatly increased the price. But I still feel like uh, if you only have a few days at the Disneyland Resort, it is, you should just calculate that into the cost of your vacation. Don't even think about it. Uh, you know, buy it with your ticket and uh, just it's part of your sunk cost because in Disneyland, it truly does transform how much you can get done in a day. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why I'm an advocate for it at Disneyland over Disney World is the subtle changes in how and when you can use it. Uh, Disney World, uh, you've got to set your alarm and wake up at 7 a.m. and hammer that system right the second it opens up at 7 a.m. Or else, uh, you know, it's it's engineered FOMO. Um, you know, a popular ride can sell out before long before the parks even open for the day. Uh, whereas at Disneyland, by restricting it to people who have already entered the park, uh, you create a natural buffer um, that keeps it from running out as quickly uh, and makes it so that if you are in there early, you've got a chance to use it six, seven, eight, nine or more times during the day. Um, and I've had I've had days at Disney World where I could only use it once twice maybe three times uh whereas disneyland with equivalent crowds and wait times for the rides could use it you know three times as many times easily um the other thing that i love about using genie plus at disneyland and and this is kind of a uh hidden hack but uh disneyland has a tendency to keep distributing uh genie plus return times on attractions even when they're not operating uh, and it makes it possible to kind of farm a uh, a broken attraction for uh, these multiple experience return times, which are good until the end of the day and good on almost any uh, lightning lane attraction, depending on which ride you originally got it for. I've had days when uh, like the Matterhorn was down and I used it to get four or five uh lightning lanes good pretty much anywhere until closing um it's kind of magical when you look at your uh app and see you have something like that stacked up and uh that doesn't that doesn't happen like that in Walt Disney World at least it so hasn't ever happened to me to clarify Seth as far as yeah. with multiple experiences pass yeah it's contention on obtaining uh a reservation for the attraction yes. that is down yes like Right. Yeah, to to yeah to clarify it, um, that uh, if an attraction is down uh, at the time that your uh, return time becomes valid, 
then it should automatically convert to what they call the multiple uh, experience pass, which would be valid at that attraction or any other lightning lane attraction within its same tier until closing time. Uh, it's kind of like a, a make good pass. Um, but, uh, you know, um, if you if an attraction goes down, they will sometimes still keep handing out future return times in expectation that it will soon come back up. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, and when it doesn't, uh, you can you can kind of target those attractions and uh, load up your wallet with a lot of return times that you can use basically anywhere. There was a time when you could use it even at non lightning lane attractions um, like uh Alice in Wonderland uh, or uh, the storybook canals. Uh, they've clamped down on that, I believe, uh, but it is still a super valuable trick. So basically you just hope that mm -hmm. the place, the ride where you make a reservation right. for Sin. goes down yes. or, or you, or you kind of keep tabs on what is down. Make exactly. A there. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. You keep an eye on, uh, you know, Disney's app or one of the uh, third party apps. Uh, and when you see an attraction goes down, but is still dispensing uh, wait times, especially if it's an attraction, uh, uh, Indiana Jones is notorious uh, for going down. Uh, and, you know, it stays down for a little, it takes a while to clear that and reset that. Um, uh, Matterhorn uh, is the same, same thing. Um, uh, though Matterhorn, since they have two tracks, it's rare for it to go down entirely. Uh, usually only one track goes down. But uh, yeah, keep your eye on uh, the my, you know, the Disneyland app or whatever third-party wait time app you like, uh, such as Touring Plans Lines. Um, and uh, yeah, you can you can farm a, a down attraction. Um, and, and I've had days where I ended up with more lightning lanes that I could possibly use uh, before the end of the day. I, I think I also yeah. read uh, in that spirit, and I uh, forgive me if it, I don't remember mm -hmm. if it was exactly in, in your book, but the mm -hmm. idea of modifying right? Yes, absolutely. That's that's my like that's another that. yeah, that's another good trick. Um, uh, farming attractions, especially attractions that uh, don't open with the park in the morning, that's a great trick for people who like to rope drop. Um, if you uh, if if you want to um, get in the park earlier in the day, but then maybe take a break. A great thing that you can do is pick up a uh, a wait time for a return time for an attraction and then keep modifying it as the time approaches. M don't delete it. Don't cancel it. Just modify it to be later in the day. Um, and if it's been uh, two hours since you got your first return time and and you haven't used that yet then you can get another one and you can get another one every two hours so what i love to do is you know you pop into the park for the first hour or so of the day and then head back to the hotel or go and do something else but at the same time you're checking in on your phone every two hours uh making another reservation and then modifying the ones that you have to be as late in the evening as you can and then you show back up in the park for the last few hours and you've got three, four, five uh, lightning lanes that you can just use back to back to back and just have a great evening in the parks with no lines. I mean, that seems like it makes a lot of sense, particularly yeah. if it's going to be a, a long day. It makes yeah. me wonder, though, because there's also, as you all uh, make very clear, there are certain attractions that you want to secure reservations for early. So at Disneyland, mm -hmm. 
it would be Indiana Jones Space Mountain uh, yep. as a couple of examples. So, but let me ask, but then if you're, you know, if you're getting there, if you're rope dropping it, you make one of those as your first lightning lane reservation. Mm -hmm. Let's say that reservation isn't until like, I don't know, 11, 12 o'clock and it's eight o'clock, then you're you're still having to wait until either two hours pass or when the attraction uh, time is to to be able to secure a new one. So mm -hmm. make more sense to to still do that and to, to still make those certain attractions, the top attractions as your first reservations, or is it is it more is it smarter to just get lightning lanes for the one that has the closest uh lightning lane time to your yeah. current time? Double -edged um, sword. Yeah, it, it is a double-edged sword. Um what you want to be look on the lookout is uh we kind of have a, a step by step um that what we do is we say, all right, first, you know, uh either following one of our touring plans or making your own personal list of your priority attractions um and of those uh you know the the most popular ones um we what we usually would say was uh for that mo most popular one uh go ahead and get that um but then spend that time until that comes due doing uh the most popular attractions that do not accept lightning lane um you know disneyland especially still has a lot of old school you know fantasy land especially attractions that are not part of genie plus or lightning lane um so uh you know using those uh rope drop hours to get in those attractions while you're waiting for your first uh, lightning lane return times is a good strategy um, and a lot of it depends on uh, what kind of a day you you want to have. Uh, are you park hopping? So maybe you want to f squeeze in everything in Disneyland, you know, before lunchtime and then hop over to DCA in the afternoon. Then you might want to try to pick the uh, sooner return times um, or maybe you know you want to just uh be in the park for rope drop um hit a few rides but then you want to go back to the hotel have some pool time take a nap and then stay until closing that would be a good opportunity to uh you know grab those popular rides in the morning but keep modifying them until you get a return time that is later in the day um so we do we kind of uh talk through both of those general strategies in the book, both for the people who are the hardcore, want to get everything fit in as many as you want. It, it basically, your choice is you can either fit in as many uh, return times as as you can in a day and get the most for your money of your Genie Plus, or uh, you can strategize and sometimes get fewer return times, but have the return times be more valuable. That's fair. Uh, well, and I appreciate you too uh, in, in the book writing about how it, it really at times makes sense to modify them uh, to where mm -hmm. it, when the park is at its busiest so that you're really best leveraging then those non-busy yes. times to go on other attractions. Yeah. You know, it's uh, especially since you can only use uh, Genie Plus to get a return time for a particular ride once each day. Um, you know, you don't want to waste your lightning lane if the standby wait is only 15 minutes. Uh, you know, uh, your lightning lane wait is probably only shaving off five minutes or, you know, a little bit more than that. Whereas if the standby lane is an hour or more, now that 
that lightning lane is a is a good uh good investment uh you, you're kind of uh, we talk a little bit in the book and also we have blogs um, where we you know kind of break down uh what is the worth you know the dollar per minute value that you're spending on this genie plus versus how much time it's saving you if you hadn't bought it um, which is a lot of math, uh, a lot of numbers to try to think about uh, when you're supposed to be on vacation. Um, but uh, the short answer is that, uh, you know, those big e-tickets, uh, if you can, you want to try to maneuver those. So you're seeing those with a lightning lane at the peak of the day. Um, and then you're filling in uh, with, you know, some of the lesser rides the, a good time to do those is when you see a return time for those that is even sooner than the wait time. You know, if you see Buzz Lightyear and it's a 30 minute wait, but uh, the return time for Lightning Lane is not for two hours, I would I would hold off. I wouldn't bother. But if it's a 30 minute wait for Buzz Lightyear and the return time is immediate, then you're basically just cutting the line. Um, so, you know, looking for uh rides that have an immediate return time or you know a return time that's much shorter than what the standby wait is those are great um it's when you see a ride that has a uh a standby wait that you know is going to be shorter later and the but if you know by the time you waited to use that long off return time you know that that standby weight's going to have dropped, so you're pretty much wasting the opportunity to use that on some other attraction where it would be more valuable. Right. Oh, very good. Very good advice. Mm -hmm. I find it absolutely fascinating, as you write in the book, that apparently 80 to 90% of ridership each hour is allocated for lightning lane. Isn't there? it amazing? Yeah. Um, the, the exact ratios are supposed to be a secret, but a lot of the time, if you are passing by the merge point uh, at one of these attraction queues. They literally have a little grid, a little matrix typed out saying, you know, if if the wait is this long, this is how many people you send from standby and this is how many people you send from lightning lane. And the best case scenario for standby people is uh, one standby person for every four lightning lane, which is you know, that that's basically you're getting 20% of the capacity is going to stand by. Um, and, you know, we've been told by Bob Iger uh, and other, you know, uh, executives that roughly 50% of the people in the park are buying and using uh, Genie Plus every day. 50% at, at Disney? About 50%. Well, okay. They, oh. I don't know if they have broken that out okay, between Disneyland and Disney World. Um, they've just, they talked about it in general. Um, but even if we use that as a rule of thumb, if you have 50% of the people get 80% of the capacity and the other 50% of the people are sharing only 20% of the capacity, and that's a best case scenario. If the lightning lane gets backed up more than a few minutes they're instructed to increase that up to uh one to nine and there are extreme circumstances if there has been a like a breakdown and there is a big backup of uh people in the lightning lane they will increase that to one one standby for every 99 lightning lane people if they have to to flush the lightning lane out um so and and it's like it's a, a case of diminishing returns like 
the more you kind of cram that 50% of the population using standby into a smaller and smaller wedge, um, you know, you can only improve things for the lightning lane people so much. So you're, you're exponentially increasing the pain, exponentially increasing the wait time for the standby people, but only increase only decreasing the weight for the lightning lane people by by so much uh so um you know i think that once upon a time when fast pass was first invented the concept was that we are just moving when people are going you know we are shifting their choice of when to join the line but you know if if 10% of the capacity is given to fast pass, then 10% of the people are using it. The more that they tried to, you know, uh, basically squeeze, uh, you know, 20 pounds of stuff into a five pound bag to, to squeeze uh, rather than uh, increasing capacity uh, increasing throughput, but just trying to play a shell game of shifting people around Um yeah, it's it makes it really unpleasant to be in a standby line at the peak of the day uh, when Lightning Lane is uh, seriously backed up. I will say that Lightning Lane does not back up as badly in Disneyland, in my experience, as it does in Disney World. Uh, Disney World, you frequently see a Lightning Lane return line that is stretching through the park, you know, a 20 to 30 minute wait for lightning lane return. Um, whereas in Disneyland, I've rarely had one that was longer than 15 minutes. Wow. What a, yeah, what a difference. Mm -hmm. So it's just so, so fascinating. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder, you, you know, you in the 2024 edition, you have some uh, content and touring plans and mm -hmm. other material that accounts for Tiana's bio adventure. Uh, yeah. We know, we know, we always know what late 2020 means that it might be December 28th or yeah. sometime late in the year that it actually comes online. What would be your recommendation um, given your you know in investment and familiarity with Disneyland? Why would you recommend someone to visit Disneyland prior to its opening in uh, late 24? What makes Disneyland still super appealing to go to even without a new attraction being online? Okay. Well, I first of all, I will say that if uh, if you have no personal investment or interest in Tiana's Bio Adventure, uh, you might want to avoid visiting uh, late in the year when it does open because it is going to be, uh, I think, a, at least for its first few months, a big draw, um, and uh, you know, will will definitely pull some crowds. So if you're looking to avoid that, fine. Um, I would say that. Uh, First of all, Disneyland's, uh, you know, they've just even today uh, announced uh, the return of some popular fireworks and parades. Um, they've got a really good program of seasonal events going on this year that they they've kind of doubled down. Uh, Walt Disney World was known for all the seasonal festivals and Disneyland has upped their game uh, and and equaled or surpassed it in a lot of ways. Um, they've got. Uh, if you are into uh, after-hour private hard-ticket events, they've got a really good uh, lineup of Disneyland After Dark uh, nights coming up. Uh, everything from Pride Night to Star Wars to uh, Sweethearts Nights around Valentine's. Um, and they've got, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned, um, 
they're bringing back wondrous journeys for spring break and that's one of my favorite uh fireworks that they've done since the 50th anniversary uh as well as the magic happens parade uh is going to be coming back um and uh you know even things like the uh, food and wine festival that they do at Disney California Adventure has grown over the last few years into something that uh, not quite an, on the same scale as the one in Epcot, but uh, so much um, to recommend it, uh, especially the fact that you get to ride Soren over California and smell the orange trees again. That's definitely worthwhile. Many yeah. of us miss the original. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, and some other exciting things that we're getting in 2024, uh, you know, it, it seems like the project took forever, uh, but they are finally uh, making real progress on the west side of downtown Disney. Um, we've got some really interesting new restaurants coming, uh, Korean dim sum. Uh, we've got um, uh, Paseo and Centrico, which is uh, going to be replacing uh Catal and Uva, which were some of my favorites. So I, I have very high expectations for that. Um, and they've uh, they recently opened that that little amphitheater, that little stage out on the west side, uh, really kind of activates that whole area at night, um, makes it a lot uh, more pleasant place to hang out after you're done at the parks. Um, and of course, if you're into the hotels, uh, they've just opened a new villas at the Disneyland Hotel which I am actually trying to stay at myself. And uh, they've, uh, they're have they about to officially rechristen the Paradise Pier Hotel to the Pixar Place. So if you are a big Toy Story fan, you get to stay amid all the Pixar characters there. Well, that's probably a perfect segue. You, you probably knew that one of my last questions was going to be about uh, value with lodging. Nah. Um, because, boy, it's... Uh, it's often best to stay on Harbor Catella um, unless I, one can spring it for one of the three Disneyland hotels. I, I, I spring is definitely uh, where if I, I got to, I got to be perfectly honest. If I was not a professional who, uh, you know, had uh, able to expense things, I would personally n probably never be able to afford to stay on Disney property at uh, Disneyland because there is no, all stars or pop, you know, there, there's no, uh, there's no affordable entry level, uh, on, on property at Disneyland. Um, and honestly, uh, I don't think they could compete with some of the prices and, uh, walkability that you get from hotels on Catella. You know, I'm, I'm looking right now, I'm booking my next trip out to Disneyland right now. And for the exact same week, I'm looking at about $450 a night plus tax to stay in uh, the least expensive room uh, on Disneyland property uh, versus about $150 a night for something on Harbor Boulevard, which is actually a shorter walk to the front gate of Disneyland Park uh, and uh, probably an equivalent sized room, you know. Uh, you know, there's always something special about the Disney magic and staying in the Disney bubble. They definitely have the best pools. Uh, if you've got kids, uh, they're best, definitely the most kid friendly. Uh, you don't have to worry about crossing a busy street with your kids if you're staying on property. But uh, the only park that you really get is the half hour of early entry, which is being cut back from every day in both parks to alternating between days at the parks 
Uh, and it's not like at Disney World where there are, um, you know, uh, late nights and uh, an advantage for lightning lanes and all sorts of other things. Uh, you really are not getting a lot for your money when you are staying uh, on Disneyland property. And, you know, there, there are great walkable options, um, well under $200 a night, you know, that easily half the price um and for the same amount of money as you stay on disneyland you could stay at like um there's a westin you know there's there's real luxury hotels that are you know true upscale hotels um and not the you know glorified you know nice you know glorified four-star but not five-star hotels that they have on on disney property yeah I was pleased to see in your book that the Hyatt House. Um, oh yeah, that's a great option. I'm, I'm that staying is a, there in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that is that is an excellent option. You have so much elbow room. Um, it's a very well run, very well maintained property. Extremely reasonable prices if you get it in the right season. And um, uh, you know, if you are, especially if you don't have kids, um, you don't. It's a slightly longer walk because it's just on the south side of Catella um uh that but if you are um you know a grown up a great great pick um i would say that is that is a great pick and if you uh are families with kids um i would say my two best picks would be uh i really like the howard johnsons uh cuz they've got a um a nice water park for the kids and a really cool uh, retro 60s vibe um, or my other favorite, uh, and honestly, I don't have kids, but I love staying there is the candy cane Inn. Uh, they've, uh, recently remodeled it's spick and span family owned, uh, great breakfast included, and you can walk to the park on the same side of the street as the park. You don't have to cross over Harbor, Harbor Boulevard. And uh, that that actually can make a significant difference when you are when every minute counts and you're walking to get there first for rope drop, uh, not having to wait to cross an extra intersection can actually make a difference. So there you go. As we wrap up, Seth, I have a, a really tough question for you. Ooh, OK, I'll try dining. So mm. I think we, we talk about everything being expensive and of course, food prices are going yeah. up everywhere. What would you say is the, and I know you all have the specific ratings uh, for each restaurant and according to, you know, portion sizes and value and all that, what would you say is the best value uh, restaurant, whether it be sit down, counter service, or even snack? Oh, that, that is a, wow, that is a tough one. Um, With snack, I am always going to have to go with anything Dole Whip based. Um, I don't think you can ever go wrong with a Dole Whip. Uh, and between the Dole Whip stand, where you can use the mobile order um, outside of the Tiki Room, or the Tropical Hideaway, which has all sorts of you know seasonal Dole Whip sundays, um, you know it's it's vegan. It's you know I I I, I don't think you can miss with a Dole Whip. Um, if the vegan part uh, doesn't interest you, my second choice uh, would be. Uh, on the completely other opposite end of the hell spectrum, but still in Adventureland, the uh, pork belly skewer at uh, Bengal, um, their uh, Bengal barbecue. Um, that's <laughs> yeah, definitely not vegan, but uh, very tasty. Um, for let's see, um, 
Uh, so I am going to pick uh, for counter service. I am a fan of San Francisco Square and the uh, it was the Pacific Wharf Cafe. Uh, now it's the Aunt May's Cafe. Aunt, Ca- Aunt Cass. Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Cass's Cafe. Sorry. Aunt May is Spider-Man. <laughs> They, they might be friends. Um, I mean, they're just they're right down the block. So I I think then when it when it comes to like um you know both uh flavor and filling you up per penny, you cannot beat soup in a bread bowl. Uh, and I you know they've got the bread bowl bakery right there. You can't get any fresher than that for the bread. And um, they uh changed up the clam chowder there it's like a mis a white miso clam chowder uh one of my favorite soups uh in you know sit down table service whatever on property um and there's especially if you're there on a cold day there's nothing like like soup and they've got a lot of other really great selections um also the the cochina cucamonga uh the birria tacos uh there's a a bunch of great things and and if you're with you know family and people like different things you've got you know three or four great options all right in one little area to pick from um and then uh you know sit down dining in disneyland i'll i'll be honest is is not a great value for the money uh if i want to sit down meal i would recommend going out to uh the grand californian and either um you know, if you can afford it, uh, go to um, uh, Napa Rose, uh, even just sitting at the bar and doing the uh, the tasting menu that they have at the bar. If you can get a seat, um, that's just an incredible experience. Um, and uh, but Storyteller Cafe uh, is that uh, is is a buffet. And if you want a buffet, uh, that's probably the best value on Disneyland property. Um, I've also got a soft spot for, uh, Carthay circle. Um, but, uh, you know, the last time I was there, you couldn't get the duck wings, you couldn't get the cheddar biscuits. And I was like, everything that I loved here is gone. Um, and, uh, I'll, I'll be a little blasphemous. I'm not a fan of, um, of, uh, the blue Bayou. I think blue Bayou is overrated and overpriced and, um, they just, they have to shuffle people in and out. It's not, it's not a particularly romantic experience, even though it's got great atmosphere. I would rather eat at the uh, new uh, Tiana's restaurant that uh, rethemed version of French market. I'd rather eat there. We so that's my hot, hot, that's my hot take. I was going to say, we got some hot takes. Uh, my hot take is I actually love Goofy's kitchen and we're going there on our next trip. So I know it's not, the best it, I think if you've food, got but... a kid, for you know for the character interaction uh and it's a very kid-friendly menu absolutely um but i yeah if you've got a mostly adult group i'd say the better buffet is is storytellers in yeah. terms of the the entrees for adults well and the atmosphere of storytellers is yeah. cool too with the artwork no it's gorgeous all. gorgeous room yeah Let's um let's wrap up, but I want to make sure I ask this essential question. What yes. takeaway what takeaways do you hope readers have from going through the guide and picking up a copy? What's what's the most salient uh, aspects? I, you know what I, I gotta say to be uh, brutally honest, I hope what they don't take away is that uh 
a Disneyland vacation is too much trouble and I shouldn't bother uh, because it, it can be intimidating. Uh, and, and this book is only half as thick as uh, our Walt Disney World book that, you know, that looks like a, a dictionary. Um, so, you know, the takeaway that I want them to have is, uh, yes, Disneyland is expensive. Yes, it is complicated. Yes, it can be frustrating. Um, but it is also genuinely magical and genuinely special. And, um, you know, even if you've been to Disney World, I I think that Disneyland is, you know, the essential uh, Disney resort um, that it's it's great. You know, I just came back from visiting Hong Kong Disneyland and I, I appreciated that trip. Um, and uh, I'm hoping to get to go to Tokyo this coming year. But Disneyland will always be you know, the, have a special spark, a special pixie dust, um, that you don't find in any of the other parks around the world. And it's worth educating yourself. Uh, you know, it's worth figuring out and doing the planning so that you can, once you're there, relax and enjoy the magic and not, uh, be taken out of that suspension of disbelief uh, by all the little details that uh, you didn't know about because you didn't prepare. Fair enough. No, I think those are all great tips. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely see a value in going to Disneyland. Jealous that you made it over to Hong Kong. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I was out there for the grand uh, or the media preview of World of Frozen, which is the first ever Frozen Land. Uh, might get something similar to it someday in Anaheim, but it will never be as massive and spectacular as in Hong Kong because it's framed by real mountains. Uh, and it's it's simply enormous and uh, really uh, beautifully executed. Yeah, I think just my biggest lament in having watched the footage is how ridiculously short the Wandron Oaken's roller coaster i you know i've had this conversation on a couple different podcasts now um that is one of those things where when you just watch a pov on a uh on youtube it doesn't make any sense why would you put all this effort all this theming in detail into a coaster that is over in 30 seconds after you crest the lift hill uh the first thing I will say is that it's got a lot more snap than it looks like in a POV. Right. Um if you were to compare it to Flight of the Hippogriff or Barnstormer or Gadget's Go Coaster, it uh, has much stronger G-forces. Um it it's its top speed, you know, might not seem that high, but as you come around the helixes, it's got it's got some really nice laterals uh you know and it's got some great little pops of air. Um, yes, it feels like it hits the brake runs too soon. But, uh, and this comes directly from the lead Imagineer who took me on a tour of the area. Um, this is designed to be your kid's first roller coaster because that resort only has two roller coasters. One which is Space Mountain, which is a clone of Disneyland Space Mountain. And one which is... Uh, Big Grizzly, which is kind of halfway between Big Thunder Mountain and Expedition Everest, neither of which are appropriate for kids uh, who are under 100 centimeters. They needed something that kids under 75 centimeters could experience as their first coaster. And they didn't want to just do another Barnstorm or Gadgets Go coaster where they slap up steel supports. And, you know, what's the story explanation for this? Well, it's, you know, it's just a roller. They knew that... Um, 
this they needed if they're going to put it there they need to make it fit in the environment and they also knew that uh in order to make it fit in the space it the roller coaster was going to have to had the lift hill was going to go up over the theater they have a, a little interactive theater inside with the lift hill going over it and then wrapping around the building sort of like so we can either have an exposed show building with a steel coaster wrapping around it or we can make this beautiful mountain so yes if you are a coaster nerd it raises your expectations way too too high but taken in the context of what it was supposed to do for the park overall and for that land in particular it makes sense and you know who thought we would complain that they went too hard on a kiddie coaster? Like they should have, they should have saved money. Like when do we ever say that Disney should have cut the budget on something? Usually we're complaining that things were value engineered out. Uh, now people are like, oh, they raised expectations too high. They shouldn't have made it that nice. Well, for the for the kids out there who that is the first roller coaster they're ever going to go on, uh, I think they deserve something nice. That's fair. And, you know, the, the queue for it looks exquisite. And oh, it's awesome. it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And as is the queue for uh, Frozen Ever After, um, you know, everyone just thought that was going to be an exact clone of what we have in Epcot. And it's not. It's Epcot was the rough draft. Ep Epcot's the D ticket. This is the E ticket version of it. And every every way, uh, every element, not reinvented just plussed and polished and perfected thank goodness for that good yeah. to hear yeah um, and i hope uh i hope it's like that when it comes to paris and uh maybe someday to anaheim right well and and tokyo tokyo is getting it with they are getting a frozen ride that is a completely different boat ride oh, that's uh, right yes okay yeah so this the the frozen ride in epcot and all the other ones are uh black light rides this new one is completely dif different aesthetic. It's a, a white light ride, and it's going to not have the same storyline. Instead, it's going to be a retelling of the first movie. Mm -hmm. so, we'll have to see when uh, when I'm I'm so intrigued by uh, the Fantasy Springs uh, at Tokyo Disney. There's so you know I feel like. Anytime anything opens in the States, we know every detail long before uh, the doors open. And for this, I have no idea what kind of ride that the the Peter Pan attraction is. You know, I I've seen the ride vehicle. I don't even know if, if what kind of ride is it hanging from the ceiling? Is it floating in midair? Was it, is it a simulate? What is it? I have no clue. I can't wait to find out. Very exciting. Okay, all right. Well, let's wrap up. I uh, have some quick Disney opinion questions for you if you have. All right. I'll, I'll try not to get myself into trouble. All right. A few music ones for you. What Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh, uh, easy. The official album of Disneyland, Walt Disney World, and Epcot Center. Um, I have, I still have it on vinyl. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, veggie, veggie, fruit, fruit is burned into my brain. Sure, <laughs> Epcot Forever didn't help out in that department. Oh no! But uh, you know what? It it didn't work for me uh, because they decided to get a choir of some of the most tone deaf, deaf children they could find to sing it instead of actual professional singers. Um, that that didn't do much for me. Wow, there's so many hot takes right now, Seth. <laughs> <laughs> Epcot Forever uh, lasted a lot longer than it should have, and certainly 
did not last forever. Let's, yeah, I was going to say I, that. But I actually really like Luminous. Uh, I've I've seen it twice now, and uh, I, you know, it's not going to replace Illuminations in my heart yet. But I think it is a more worthy successor than uh, Epcot Forever or Harmonious put together. There you go. What Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Um. Oh well, I got uh just because uh have having seen luminous the uh the vocal intro the vocal introduction to into the unknown mm-hmm. uh that kind of like choral oh no yeah. i cannot sing um because they use that in the show and for some reason that's just st- stuck looping in my head that little bit mm, i love that though <laughs> what disney film do you feel is the most underrated music oh huh underrated music from a disney film mm-hmm. hmm, you're gonna have to edit my uh thoughtful pause out of this one um i don't know i'm 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 a little stumped i mean i i would say okay i would say uh my favorite it's not an underrated score because everyone loves it uh but everyone loves the songs and i think that the orchestral score from the little mermaid the background tunes that are you know not the songs uh mm-hmm. are really fantastic and uh, do not get enough credit and i was hoping that they would have used more of them as a basis for the additional songs that they wrote for the little mermaid broadway show uh which unfortunately was not the case like when they turned lion king into a musical they took the uh kind of the Hans Zimmer score that was then adapted into the rhythm of the pride lands album mm-hmm. uh and sort of turned those into songs in the musical um cool. and for little mermaid i thought that the original stuff that they wrote for the broadway show wasn't in the same spirit as uh, as the score of the of the film so i i i really love the the orchestral score of little mermaid does not get yeah. enough credit that's uh, my final answer sorry great i mean took me a long while answer. to get there sorry all good now a couple of book questions for you what is the most recent disney book that you have read other than your own <laughs> oh um uh well right now i have on my nightstand i've not finished it um working through i believe it was the last book he published jim corcus who was a phenomenal Jim uh, Disney historian and just a really wonderful person. Um, he wrote a uh, book on uh, Disney and Peter Pan and Neverland, um, calling a lot of really great stories. Um, and uh, so that's that's the one uh, in progress sitting on my nightstand right now. Cool. Uh, second question for you here is if you could write a Disney book on any topic, mm. what would it be? Um, well, if I could uh, get someone to underwrite the travel, it would be an unofficial guide to all of the Asian uh, Disney parks, uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai, uh, Tokyo. Um, and I'd even throw in some uh, universal parks in there like Beijing and, and Osaka, uh, written for the from the perspective of the uh, American Disney fan. Um but uh, I'm not sure if there's uh, enough of us out there who uh, can afford to take a trip like that to uh, make that profitable. But uh, if uh, if money was no object, that would be a, a book I'd like to write. I love that notion. Yeah. 
then the last random question, this is um, this this last question I, I varied up with each guest. So for you, in the spirit of, of your yeah. book, what piece of entertainment from oh. Disneyland Resort past oh. would you hope could return in the future? So however you define entertainment, there are some. Oh, wow. I mean, there there's, ooh, that's, I could, uh, <laughs> this could be a whole, a whole podcast. Um, uh, for one that is about to become part of the past that I wish could stay all, all around a little longer, the Tale of the Lion King show at uh, the Fantasyland Theater, that cast goes so hard. Um, that is such a joyful interpretation of the story. It is not just the Broadway version. It's not just the movie. It's it's really uh, uh, fresh, and um, I I wish you know they had were out at DCA a couple of years ago, having to do that out in the hot sun. They finally got a, a good theater, and uh, I wish they were not losing that space. Um, so. Uh, if you want to go a little further back in the past, though, um, remember the Disneyland 50th anniversary fireworks. Uh, that was, to me, the first fireworks show that went from just being fireworks to being a real like theatrical experience. And it was also I don't think any other fireworks show or, you know, that or whatever that they've done since has been as effective as tapping into nostalgia for the Disney parks history. Yeah. And, you know, I was hoping that when uh, Walt Disney world had its 50th anniversary, that we were going to see its equivalent and it was, it barely paid lip service to Walt or, you know, the parks history. It was more about whatever is the popular IP that they want to promote now. Um, and, you know, I thought like, and even Epcot Forever, it was it was fan service without real heart to me. And I feel like remember uh, the the Disneyland 50th fireworks were the the first and maybe the last one to really nail that you know authentic nostalgia and not just feeling like they're manipulating you. Oh, I completely agree. I loved Remember, and I, mm -hmm. what I also loved too was uh, at the time of the 50th how they released the six CD box set of Disneyland music um, over the decades, and I have those CDs. And oh yeah, uh, the big red box. Uh -huh, yes, yeah. yes, I have. Yes, that's fantastic collection. And it's just it's a nice, uh, I think, mm -hmm. compliment if you will, because it taps into so many of those uh, scores and songs. Absolutely. And and one last thing, I, I don't know if it's fair to classify them as entertainment because they were living creatures, damn it. But the goats, uh, the goat farm at Big Thunder Ranch, um, that to me was the most entertaining live attraction in all of Disneyland. And like I flew out there specifically to be able to watch the final running of the goats uh, when they closed that down. And I cried. Um, those guys, uh, uh, there are two in particular, Lilo and Stitch, they're brothers with these albino eyes and, uh, amazing. Um, they, they were, they were my favorite Disney entertainers by far. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I know. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And see, you, you start me off. I'm, you're trying to cut me off and finish the show, but you can't because the last one is one that I never personally saw. <clears throat> but if I had had a time machine, um, I wish that I could go back and have seen Wally Bogue uh, perform in the uh, the Horseshoe Review. Uh, watched films of it, uh, talked to um, 
uh, um, Ron Schneider, who was uh, his his protege and went on to be the Dreamfinder in, in Epcot. And um, I I wish I could have seen that in person. I'm glad there's film of it. That's awesome. I, I very much miss Aladdin, a musical spectacular. Oh, my God. Don't I, you know, I, I keep seeing, uh, in fact, it's coming back and they offered me tickets, the Aladdin Broadway uh, mm -hmm. tour. Um, and the last time I went to see it and I had to write a review and I, I, it came down to, I would so much rather be watching the California adventure version of this show than this overblown, overly produced you know, almost three hour monstrosity. They did everything they needed to in the DCA version. And I like the the one that they have on the cruise ship as well, but the cruise ship genies cannot um, improvise the way the ones in DCA did. Those were some of the best ad libs I've ever heard in a Disney theme park. And I, I miss him. I miss him. Seth, how can listeners pick up a copy of the unofficial guide to Disneyland? Absolutely. And follow well, you on social media. Thank you for that segue. Um, you can find the unofficial guide in uh, fine bookstores everywhere. If you still have a fine bookstore near you um, or in the usual online bookstores, but we really encourage you to head on over to the unofficial guides.com because uh, we can ship it directly to you. Uh, and you can keep up with me on all social media platforms at S Kuberski, S K U B E R S K Y. And uh, the unofficial guides are on social media at the unofficial guides. There you have it. Seth, what a pleasure. Really glad I had the opportunity to chat with you. And I feel even more ready to go for my future Disneyland travels. Well, this was great. Uh, someday I would love to come on and talk uh, more about Disney books and Disney music. Uh, we should compare collections because I, I have a feeling that our libraries probably have a lot in common. There you go. It's great Probably talking fun. to you. Thanks, Seth. And thank you again to Seth Kaberski for joining me on Notably Disney. I highly recommend the unofficial guide to Disneyland 2024, as well as all the other iterations of the unofficial guide as you plan your next theme park-related vacation. As you can tell, there is an inordinate number of tips and great recommendations within these guides as you think about how to maximize your future holiday. And clearly there is a lot packed into the unofficial guide to Disneyland 2024, more than we even had time to cover. So again, worth a purchase and worth uh, using as a valuable tool when you go to Disneyland on a future vacation. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.